you got a Bible, if you'd open up to John 8, uh, I am the light of the world, part two. That's what we got today. So we'll pray, Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for having us gathered here to hear your word and ask you to uh, help me to speak, Lord, that we can hear your voice through your word and, and what's preached uh, so that we can know you better, Lord, and walk more faithfully with you. And we thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 12, chapter 8 of John, it says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. And Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, well, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. In these words, Jesus spoke in the treasure as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. And then Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath but I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. We talked last week, we spent the entire message basically talking about John 8, 12. Really, this is one of the most tremendous statements and invitations in the entire Bible that Jesus makes here in John 8, 12, that I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And we said he's proclaiming that at the time. He's saying that he's standing in the temple treasury during the Feast of Tabernacles four great oil lamps that towered far above the temple. They were lit daily, and when those lamps were lit, it lit up all of Jerusalem. And that had to be a tremendous sight. And we said that during that festival, during that occasion, when they lit those lights, the illumination of lights, that there was singing, dancing, instruments. It was just like a real joyous occasion. They're celebrating the fact that God had led that nation. The reason they were there is he had led them by his light, through the wilderness into that promised land. And not only that, but he told them, this is an indication, they left that fourth lamp unlit to the last day that the Messiah is coming back and he's going to restore 
the joy, the glory, and release them from the bondage they were in. And that was their great hope, this, that this great light would come. During all of that, Jesus makes what would have been a shocking claim. He says, I am, ego a me, I am God, I am the light. I am that light is basically what he's telling them. And he says, not only that light that you've been waiting for, for Israel, he says, but I am the light of the entire world. The one and only light. Like I said last week, we've got one son for the entire world, and we have one S-O-N, son of light, for the entire world. He is the only, just like that son is our only source of light here on earth, he is the only source of light and truth and life of the entire world. Literally, everything else is utter darkness, spiritually, and that's a tremendous thing. And he's proclaiming the gospel. He's saying all men are in darkness, this entire world. He's saying, but I have come to bring, Jesus is saying, the true light of God. And whoever follows me. Now, this is going to be significant later on. But he's saying follows, that is a present tense verb. That means continues to follow me. Because we're going to see the Jews a lot of times, it would say many times, even in John, they believed on him. But next thing you know, they quit following. They're turning and walking the other way. So he's saying whosoever comes to me, the light, and continues with me in the light and follows me in the light will never again, never again walk in darkness. But he's saying you will forever have the light of life. And listen, that light from the time you're saved until you go on, that path and that light, we saw it in Proverbs, it just keeps getting brighter and brighter and brighter, doesn't it? Until we're brought into glory in the eternal light where there will never be night again. I mean, that'll be something else, won't it? That'll be something else, something to keep before us. It really is because of the things we're going to be going through in the future. We need to keep those heavenly glories ahead of us. And the promises of there is no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has waiting for us. We have got to keep that in front of us Amen. as our goal and not let that go no matter what. Because otherwise we get bogged down into, well, well, how do things seem to be going for me here? They're not going too good. You know, we can get all bogged down. We have to see, wait a minute. These are trials to perfect us. And he is bringing us in to this eternal glory. And that's his promise to us, isn't it? We just have to keep following in that light. Following in the light. It's a tremendous, magnificent, I would say, invitation. And there is nothing else in this world. I mean, literally, I'm not just saying this because the world will try to tell you, oh, no, we have ways to meet your needs. But I'm saying this world has desperate needs. Men, women, teenagers, children, all have needs, all have desires. And what he's saying is this light, it's designed, this invitation that Jesus is holding out in front of us, it's designed to meet the desperate needs of this world like nothing else possibly can. It's impossible. This world is in darkness. The confusion, the terror, the fear, I don't need to get into all of that. We're well aware of that fact. The Bible, if we're going to take the New Testament for what it says... It's not like there is more light coming on this earth. At one time, they thought that, you know, you have the post-millennialists that think, you know, God's going to usher his kingdom. It'll come in here. That's not the way it's going to be. It's going to just keep getting darker and darker. There's going to be a falling away. There's going to be darkness covering this earth. Darkness will increase until the time that the Lord Jesus Christ reappears his second time and sets up his millennial kingdom. So it's not like light's going to come, but we can be in the light in the midst of that darkness. That's what the promise we're seeing here. He's graciously God Almighty. 
We have to see here the Lord Jesus Christ graciously condescended to you and me and anyone that will listen. He's humbled himself in a way that we will never understand, clothed himself in flesh. We can't understand that because we've never been absolutely pure and holy and then had to come in the midst of pure unholiness, so to speak, right? We'll never understand what he did. He was abused. He was mocked. He was spit upon. And the more I read these Gospels, the more I see to where you kind of take for granted his answers because we know him so well. But I'm thinking he really is restraining himself in an unreal way with the abuse he's taken and the things these people are saying to them. He doesn't get smart. He doesn't get in the flesh. He patiently will repeat himself several times saying the same thing over and over. That's just amazing, isn't it? And that's light that has come down and condescending. How could anyone, you would think, and you see the Lord Jesus Christ, how could anyone who is in their right mind, when this invitation comes from him, he speaks on that festival and says, I am the light of the world. If you'll follow me, you'll never walk in darkness again. How could anyone in their right mind turn that down? But here's the problem. Most people, if not all of us at one time and all of the world, is not in its right mind. In one form or another, we're all the prodigal, right? And what had to happen to him? In God's grace, he had to, at one point, he got down to the bottom of the pit and it said he came to his senses. And that has to happen to anybody that gets saved, right? Have to come to their senses. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he raised this question about the Gospel of John and in particular, these verses we're looking at today in John 8. And I thought this was good. He says, why do we really care why do we have to sit in on what the Pharisees say? You know, why does John, he's the apostle of love, <laughs> why does he include all these disputes and arguments that the Pharisees and the Jews have with Jesus? And I'm saying you don't realize this, but if you go think about the Gospel of John, there are many of them. They're in chapters 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 12. Every one of those has things where they're arguing with him. And he's getting in these disputes with the Pharisees. Why do we have that? Don't we want, you know, it's arguments and disputes. Who wants to sit in on an argument? Don't we want to have a more positive message? Well, yes, we want to have a more positive message. But I think there's reasons for that because they're really helpful. And I'll tell you, they're helpful in two ways. One, I just said, I mean, we learn it by his reaction, what he says, the truth he proclaims through these where they're confronting him and not in a nice way. But we learn about Jesus's heart. We learn about his will. We learn about his authority, his boldness, and yet we also see his meekness. So we learn about our Lord through those confrontations, don't we? But more importantly, we learn about ourselves. You say ourselves. I'm not a Pharisee. Oh, don't be too quick to say that. We all have tendencies of the Pharisees, whether we want to admit it or not, don't we? We all have those tendencies that we still need to be delivered from, some more and some less. Trust me, that's the way it is, whether you want to admit it or not, because self-righteousness, hypocrisy, all of those things are something we constantly need to be on guard about. Amen? Should have got a little louder amen in that. Here's what I'm saying, though. Isn't it a little less confrontational and easier to take when you see that going on with someone else that you're reading about? In other words, David, he's in bad trouble. And when Nathan comes to him, does Nathan doesn't just get right in his face, does he? He tells him a story about somebody else. And that allows David to be objective. He hears this story, you know, about the guy taking the sheep and all that. And he's like, wait a minute, that is not right. 
And Nathan says, you're right, that's not right, but I'm not really talking about it. I'm talking about you. <laughs> then he gets that finger pointed right under his nose. It's the same with the elder brother in Luke 15. You can read that story, and it's pretty easy to pick him apart, isn't it? Oh, man, the guy's got his nose up in the air. He should have been happy about his brother. And Jesus is telling that parable, and he's saying, wait a minute. I'm talking about you. If you'll humble yourself and listen to what's being said, isn't that the truth? It really is. And that's what's going on here. What we're dealing with here, John, in giving us this account, verses 13 through 30, really the whole chapter, He's dealing with causes of unbelief. Because that's what's happening here. These Pharisees, they are rooted in unbelief. They refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why people refuse to put their complete trust in Jesus Christ? Because people have their own reasons. You go out in the world and people have their reasons. You know, they'll say, because I'm somebody that thinks. This is why I don't believe your religion. I'm somebody that thinks. I'm rational. You know, I know somebody that's very close to me that their whole thing is they're all into statistics. And they're just saying, when I look at statistics and I look at it just this whole Christianity thing, somebody rising from the dead, statistically, this is crazy. That's why I don't believe your religion. So some people, they think they're just too smart. It's just below their dignity. Or I'm a thinker. I'm not going to be one of these people that's given into some crutch. I've heard that a lot of times. And others will say, hey, wait a minute. We've got all these advances in science, medical, and otherwise, and it disproves the ignorance of the Bible. Starting with the Big Bang Theory, in the beginning God, I don't think so. Most of the world doesn't believe in the beginning God. That's the very first verse of the Bible. The Big Bang Theory, all this technology, and now we understand how people get sick and how that all works and all this ignorance of the New Testament times. We don't need that anymore. Or even more common today is that whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, it's just a matter of opinion. And I've literally heard this in trying to witness to people. Well, what works for you is okay for you, but that's just your opinion. And they look at Christianity and religion no different than politics or music or art. It's just like, well, you like that kind of art? Fine. I like this kind of art. You like Beethoven? I like rock and roll. And they look at religion. It's just that way. In their mind, it's not one size fits all. That's what they want to say. Everyone doesn't have to believe like you. That's kind of what people think, and that's what you'll hear. But really, is that the case? Is that what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, look, this is the only way. You want to know God? There are not all these multiple paths. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light. There is no other light. People will have their reasons for not wanting to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but really the Bible Jesus and experience tells us the reason for unbelief is much deeper than what they're saying. They're never going to admit that I've got a rebellious heart against God, but really that's what it is. That really is. It goes back to the garden. When man turned his back on God and believed the lie of the devil, like we talked about last week, that God is just really not all that loving, not all that generous. He's wanting to be restrictive. And then they develop an attitude towards God. That's what happened. You turn their back on the Lord. That's what that deep root is, because since Adam, man's nature has been blind, twisted and corrupted. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. It's not a matter then really of whether you're a genius or a high school dropout. Race has nothing to do with it, with whether you believe. In gifts, the kind of how gifted you are, none of that really matters, does it? Because the wino in the gutter is no more interested in Jesus than the Wall Street broker. 
Because the problem's not an intellectual one, is it? It's not a where you're at in society problem, is it? It's a matter of right in here, isn't it? It's a matter of the heart. Because every person born into this world has the same inner sickness without exception. And Jesus is the only physician that can heal that sickness. He is the only one. He is the only light that can guide us out of the darkness we're in. He is the only one. We see these causes for unbelief here in John 8. And the first thing I want to look at is the Pharisees, their problem was they were prejudiced. They already had their mind made up about Jesus. To be prejudiced about something means you have a preconceived opinion that's not based on reason and it's not based on experience. You got a preconceived opinion, not based on reason or actual experience. Trust me, when somebody becomes prejudiced against you, when someone has this attitude towards you and they're prejudiced against you like they were towards Jesus, there is nothing you can say and there's nothing you can do that's going to change their mind. I've seen it happen. They'll find a way to hang you. And that's what they did with him. And that's exactly what's going on here. And it's exactly what went on with the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. Think about it here. Jesus has just made one, like I've said, the greatest statements ever to be uttered on earth that he, God, had come to bring light. And he's inviting everyone to come and follow him out of darkness. Now, you think about it. What did the Pharisees do with that statement that he's making? And they'd seen, they'd already seen many miracles that he had done. You know, they don't say, you know, man, what you just said is a tremendous thing. What do you mean by that? We'd like to know more about that. There's obviously something different about you. Uh, they don't do that. What do they do instead? They want to argue about some triviality in the law that really doesn't even apply to what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 13. He just got through making that statement in verse 12. I am the light of the world. And it says the Pharisees, therefore... In other words, this is their prejudice. This is their reaction. Not to ask about that, but it says, They therefore said to him, Will you bear witness of yourself? And your witness is not true. And here's what we need to know. So we, did, we haven't gone through the Gospel of John. Maybe it would have been helpful if we did. But just back in chapter 5, they're saying, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. He's saying, No, no, no. He'd already done it. Just turn back there, if you would. Turn to chapter 5. He gave them four witnesses. Four witnesses, and they're accusing him that he's witnessing of himself. His witness isn't true. The point is they already had their minds made up of what they believed about him. Look in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. And Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. So he says, okay, well, there's another one who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. He says, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet, I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, and here's his second witness, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do. They bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Here's the third witness. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you did not believe. Here is the fourth witness. You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. He says, but these are they which 
bear witness. They testify of me. In verse 40, he says, but you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. So he's given four witnesses there. He's already given it before we get over here into chapter 8. He's saying, John the Baptist, the Father, the works that I have done, and the scriptures. Patiently, that's what I'm saying. He patiently, they're confronting him. He just patiently lays it all out. Look, here's all, you want some evidence? You need witnesses? I'll give them to you. Here they are. Here's four witnesses. But here is the problem. It's not that he didn't speak clearly. It wasn't that the evidences weren't enough or that the evidences couldn't be seen. I mean, the Father's voice came from heaven. The works could clearly be seen. They saw John the Baptist, and the scriptures were sitting right in front of him. It's not like this is some kind of hidden witnesses that he's talking about that they couldn't find. They're right there. But the problem is what? The bottom line problem, this is what I'm saying. People have their reasons for not coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're never going to give the real reason that they got a heart problem. And they hate him. Because verse 40, look at it. That is the crux of the matter. He gave him all those witnesses, but he says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. They don't want it. They hate the light and they hate him. Isn't that what we read in John 3? The light has come. The condemnation is this. It's not that we're all sinners. Yeah, we're condemned about that. But God has sent a way for us to be redeemed. So the condemnation is the light has come. Redemption has come. Our opportunity to get out of darkness has come. But he says, but men wouldn't come to the light because they didn't want their deeds to be exposed. That's the heart of the matter. That's the, the bottom line. They had a tremendous, the Pharisees, a tremendous genius. They could see the amazing, miraculous, tremendous things take place. And then they get bogged down in this meaningless triviality. And that's what unbelief will do. You know, we're in here in John 5. But do you know what takes place that brings all this on in John 5? There's a man there, 38 years. He had an infirmity. Now, that is a long time. 38 years that kept him from walking, a cripple, disappointed time after time. The waters are stirred. He can't crawl there fast enough. Nobody will put him in, and everyone gets ahead of him and apparently got healed. He didn't. He stuck there 38 years. That's more than most people their age in here. You think about that. You've been in a trial for a while. This guy's been in a trial for 38 years. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and instantly heals the man. A great miracle. And everyone would have known about it. Everybody would have known about that guy. He's right there. And what are the Pharisees consumed with? When this happens, they're not consumed with the miracle. They're not consumed with the fact God had shown mercy on this man. They're not consumed with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ that these wonders are happening through. Like, wow, look what happened with this guy. The power of God is on him. They're missing all of that. All of that. What are they consumed with? I mean, it's all, it really is laughable, isn't it? But yet we do the same things. But they're consumed with the fact that this guy rolled up a cot, put it under his arm, and carried it on the Sabbath. I mean, that is like laughable, isn't it? And they did that time after time after time. The man with the withered hand got his hand healed. He got his hand restored right in front of them. And I mean, that didn't bless them one iota. All that did was they're out there. We're going to destroy the guy that did that. That's what unbelief will do to you. The blind man, the next chapter after the one we're in, in John 9, they're not happy that guy has been blind since he was a baby. 
<laughs> now he can see it. Look at him. No, who is this guy that did that to you? How did he do that to you? They're just getting a pick on the situation. Lazarus raised from the dead. It's like, wow, somebody that can do that. This is a special person here. Uh uh-uh. No, when that got out, their reaction was, we're going to destroy him because everybody's going to start following him. We're not going to allow that to happen. We are going to destroy him and Lazarus. That was the plan they were making. And that's what unbelief will do. Unbelief will not listen to God anymore. It's prejudiced against him. Or be persuaded by his word or by miracles. And then you don't want to land there. You don't want to land there to where you're so prejudiced against that this God will do that. He promises he will do that. That you don't want to see it happen. You don't want to believe it anymore. That's not what you want. Because most today in America... Let's just talk about America. It counts for us, too. More than enough evidence like these Pharisees of who Jesus is. Because our country, the light has shown brighter here than I would say anywhere else. Anywhere. Now, it's dark, but the light sure has shown bright and it's still shining. We've had holiness teaching. We've had great healing revivals. A lot of the great healing evangelists came out of this nation. Tremendous miracles took place and not hidden in a corner. They were actually broadcast on TV where anybody could tune in and watch a lot of those ministries that took place. We've had Bible teachers anointed. Brother Hamilton here, Dr. Freeman up there, all over. I've heard many of anointed Bible teachers and they're still around today here in America. The freedom of worship we have, the light has shown bright. What I'm seeing happening now, the different places I've been, where I mean, it's men I'm hearing, they're preaching the gospel, their preaching is really good, and there's like nobody there to hear them. And it's not like they're out in some country town where there's a population of 50 and they got two coming. No, these are populations bigger than Shelbyville. And these guys are preaching to crowds of 10, 15, 25. I'm like, what is wrong? They're just preaching basic truths and in a good way and things that people would have been glad to hear a year back. But nobody seems to want to hear the truth much anymore. We got a lot of religion in America. I mean, we're overflowing with religion and they are, believe me, they are not the same thing. I know I I don't want to be like, well, who are you to say I'm, I'm nobody? Okay, I'm just telling you, it's the way it is. We got a ton of religion in a lot of different forms. What we need to see is you don't want to be straining at the gnat and swallowing the camel. That's what he told him in Matthew 23, the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. He said, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone and he tells them this he says you are blind guides you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel and they are so consumed with the things that really don't matter he says you all have got a genius for missing the gigantic important things that God is doing because you're focusing on the trivial the little gnats the little tiny gnats what happens when you're that way is you get involved in religious things that really don't require you to know God to do them 
This is what they were. They're like really particular on the scriptures and really particular that everybody do everything just right. You can be that way. That's what happened to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He says, I know your works. You guys, you found out the ones that are false. You know, you're doing all these things. But he's saying you can do all of those things, what Jesus is telling us there at the book of Revelation with the church of Ephesus. You can do all of those things and not really know him, not really have a love for him, not really have that relationship that is going to cause you to have justice in the right way, mercy and true faith. We can be all right with crossing our T's and all that, but and there's nothing wrong with that. But we have to have that relationship. We have to know him. We have to be walking with him in the light on a daily basis, don't we? That's really where it's all about. So their attitude when they came to him, you know, they didn't have an attitude of respect, seeking his wisdom, seeing his glory. They were antagonistic. They had a bad spirit about him. And you'll see here, it's in the way, if you go back to John 8, it's in the way they even ask these questions. You know, look at even verse 13. They're calling him a liar. They say, you're bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. In other words, you're a liar. They didn't just say it might not be true because of that. They're telling him because you're bearing witness of yourself, there's no truth to it. Well, how can they say that? And that's where Jesus answered. He goes, if I bear witness of myself, you can't say that because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. That's like if I say, you know, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and somebody says, you're a liar, you're bearing witness to yourself. I'm like, you're crazy. I know where I came from. Now, I know where I'm going after church, I think. I'm going back to Louisville eventually. But I don't know that. Like, Jesus knew where he was going. He's God. He knows what's going on with him. But they got this bad spirit. Call him a liar. Verse 19. If you look down there, look what it says. It says, where is your father? I mean, they're not saying that in a nice way. They're like, where? And it's not like Nemo. Where is your father? No, it's not like that. This is antagonistic. Yeah, where is your father is the way they're saying. And then in verse 22, you know, they realize they somehow figure out he's talking about his death. And then they accuse him. This is the worst thing a Jew could be accused of is suicide. And they said, what, you're going to kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And then in verse 25, they just say, you know, who are you? At this point, he's been telling them who he is over and over. And he gets a little exasperated. I mean, that next sentence, he's just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. It's like, how many times do I have to say it? But they just have this attitude towards him in the way they're asking these questions. So here's the problem. His glory was veiled by his flesh. And here's what's the issue that I see with this is even though his glory is veiled by his flesh, he is still the son of God. You can't hide your countenance. His flesh is not going to hide his countenance and who he is. When he's making these proclamations, even when he's talking to them, he had to have a certain holy glow about himself. We have no idea what he looked like, do we? Forget all the pictures you've ever seen about Jesus, all these movies. I wouldn't waste my time with any of that stuff. No one knows what he looks like on purpose. We know he had to have a glow about him, but more than that, it doesn't matter what he looked like because his words had an anointing. Such an anointing that the people marveled. This man, we've never heard words spoken like this with this authority, with this power. They should have been able to see past what he looked like, but they couldn't. Could they? How could they not be affected by him? And the only reason is it was stubborn, prejudiced unbelief. They weren't willing to listen to the voice that was coming out of him. 
they weren't willing to hear his voice. And if you would turn to Hebrews 3, we're talking about the causes of unbelief. The writer of Hebrews talks about that right here. Not hearing the voice. Hebrews chapter 3, and beginning in verse 7, Hebrews 3, 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will what? Hear his voice. He says, don't harden your hearts. And they did. And we can. He says, don't harden your hearts as in what? The rebellion. And that goes back to the garden. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry, he says, with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Based on what was just said there, look what we have in verse 12. He says, beware, brethren. That's us. Beware, lest there be in any of you, what? An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. Amen. What's he saying there if we put that together? To depart from the living God is to depart from what? Is to depart from listening to his voice when he speaks. He's spoken to us today through his word. He speaks to us through preaching. He can speak to your heart as you walk through the day and you commune with him. He can speak to your heart when he's calling you to prayer. Spend time with me in prayer. And he's saying today, don't have that evil heart of unbelief, that rebellious heart that God's calling. He's beckoning you. He's inviting you. And you say, no, not right now. Don't do that. In departing from the living God, departing from his voice. We've got to give heed to his voice, don't we? That's what it's talking about there. And if you go back to John 8, the second cause of unbelief is that they judged according to the flesh. Look what it says in verse 14. Jesus answered and said unto them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. Look at verse 15. He says, You judge according to the flesh. He says, I judge no one. They're judging him. Like I said, they're looking at him. They're saying, We know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, and we know that no good thing comes out of Nazareth. And we know that's where you're from. You're just a man, just a common man. You're just not only a common man, you're just a carpenter. You're sitting here teaching us, talking to us. You haven't had any training. You haven't been to the seminary. <laughs> and you're claiming to be the light of the world. Come on. I think that's what they're telling him. And Jesus is telling him here, listen, fellas. You're accusing me of my witness is not true. And he's saying, wait a minute, you really can't judge this book. He's saying about himself, you can't judge this book by its cover. Because he says, I know where I came from and I know where I am going. And when he says that, he's setting himself apart from every other person, isn't he? Because he's saying, look, I am God. I am, ego and me, the light of the world. And I don't need to appeal to a higher testimony or a higher witnesses. I am the light of the world. Light is revelation that comes from God. And you don't tell God, prove who you are, do you? 
Nobody would do that, but that's what they're doing here. Guy said this, I thought it was good. What does light do? Light reveals objects, doesn't it? Without light, we could never see anything for what it really was. But light itself is its own revelation, isn't it? It doesn't need someone else to reveal it. It's known by itself. And Jesus is telling them that, basically. He said, I am the light of the world. My light has shone so bright. I've already told you how it has. I've already shown you by my works, by my Father's voice, all the things that are taking place, that I don't need any other verification. And that's why he says, look what he says in verse 18. He says, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. You know, no Old Testament prophet had to sit there and verify the revelation that he had from God. Moses didn't. The works he did and the words he said were all that was needed, weren't they? And he was from God. And he recognized that. Unless you're in a, a rebellious, stubborn heart of unbelief, you'll see that. And that's what Jesus is telling them. If you didn't have this rebellious, stubborn heart, you'd have no problem seeing that I am the light. It's self-revealing. When I'm done, who I am, what I'm saying, forget about the flesh. You're judging according to what you see and where you think I'm from. They didn't even really check that out. And that wasn't just, though, a problem for the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a problem for all the apostles. Paul ran into that problem when he was in Corinth. He said, you all are judging me by outward appearance. In 2 Corinthians 10, 7, Paul says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? He literally said that. Because Paul wasn't matching up to the quote-unquote super apostles, those that claimed they were apostles in Corinth. He wasn't matching up to them. He probably didn't even look as nice. They were probably coiffed. But they could speak well. They were eloquent. They gave this thing about, man, we are the guys. And who is this guy? And Paul says this. They said this about Paul. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence, there they're looking at the outward appearance again, is weak. And his speech is contemptible. So Paul, like Jesus, was being judged not by what he said, not by the gifts that were manifested through him, but by his outward appearance. And it affected, it affected how the Corinthians received his word. Put them in unbelief to where he had to admonish them. Turn over, if you would please, to 2 Corinthians 11. Now look at the first six verses. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, Paul says, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Well, how's that going to happen? He goes on to say, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus, that's how it's going to happen, whom we have not preached. Or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech. Yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. And Paul's saying, look, I've preached the gospel. I may not have been the most eloquent person, may not have done it in the most eloquent way, but it came in power and in truth, didn't it? And he's saying, you received that then. And he goes, I'm afraid. These other guys, they're coming in here and they're a little slicker talkers than I am. And they present things that seem a lot more reasonable than what I've said and maybe not as hard. I'm afraid you're going to get corrupted. 
from the simplicity. The gospel message is really simple in essence. It's just hard to live. You say, I'm afraid that's going to happen to y'all because you're over-impressed with men. That's what's going on here, isn't it, with Jesus and the Pharisees? Isn't it the same thing? It's just a principle. Any ministry. I'm talking about any ministry. We can't be overawed by who they are, what they look like, how accepted they are, how reasonable what they say is, or how deep it seems. You don't judge any ministry on the color of its skin, the religious training or lack of it, eloquence, personality, accent, poverty. What is it that Jesus is saying? What did we just hear in Hebrews? What should we be listening for above all else? You've got to cut through all of that stuff at times. You've got to be listening for the voice of the shepherd. Listening to what's being said. And melt it all down. The guy was sending me this stuff from somebody up north. I kept getting it. This guy would go on and talk for an hour and 15 minutes, and he was eloquent. He could sit there and talk with no notes and just stand there and talk, 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 talk. And it all sounded good, but at the end of it all, I listened to two or three messages, and I'm like, I could distill that all down into five minutes, and it was five minutes basically of nothing. I'm sorry. I don't mean that critically. So what I'm saying is we have to have some discernment, don't we? Yeah. And when you have the Spirit and a right heart, for the Lord, it says you'll have an anointing. It'll teach you. You'll know truth. Jesus didn't get all upset when the multitudes walked away from him because he spoke some things they didn't get. Because he says, my sheep will hear my voice and they will not follow another. Amen. That's what will happen. That's what he'll do. Nicodemus. The other thing is, you've got to be spiritual. Judging according to the flesh People that judge according to the flesh, it can also mean you are not spiritual. You're in the flesh. And then when you're in the flesh, that means you're unregenerate. You cannot discern truth and spiritual things. Nicodemus, at least he recognized that Jesus' miracles witnessed to something. He told him, he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do those signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus basically cut him off and he says, Nick, I'm going to tell you something. This is what you need more than anything else. You need to be born from above. You need to be born again. And then you can truly understand spiritual things because you don't at this point. And to prove the point, what did Nicodemus say to him when Jesus said you must be born again? His answer was totally fleshly and in the natural. How can I crawl back up in my mom and be born a second time? And Jesus is like, you're proving my point. You can't understand anything until you're born again. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man, the unregenerate man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The unregenerate person tries, they might, they will never willingly submit to the yoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't understand it. They don't understand why, how, none of that. Luke 13, you try taking that story about the woman with the bowed back and go to find somebody that's unsaved that you know and tell them, well, there's this account of Jesus in the Bible, this woman, she was bent over, couldn't get up. And he told her she had a spirit of infirmity. That's what kept her from standing up. And when he cast that spirit out, immediately she stood up straight and see what their reaction is. <laughs> I think you'll see unbelief manifest. <laughs> Casting a spirit out, did what? Huh? <laughs> kind of, what have you been smoking? 
What I'm trying to say is that Jesus is the source of revelation, the only source to light. If we want to know about God, we want to know about his ways, we want to know about the Father, the one who created us and this universe and how it operates and how we best function in it and how we're going to make it to heaven, we have got to start with the Lord Jesus Christ and the revelation he gives and the Bible. And that doesn't include science, philosophy, and the world's system. That's man trying to understand things. How this world operates, how we get right with God, how we make it to heaven, it doesn't come by man searching, finding, experimenting, does it? It comes by a revelation. Light, a revelation. Your eyes are opened and only comes that way. I am the light of the world, he said. Back to John 8. Jesus said, though, he says, I didn't come to judge, verse 15. Isn't that what he says? His purpose in coming the first time was to do what? It was to save and to bring light. Listen, he could have judged the Pharisees. That's what he's saying over and look in verse 25 and 26. He says, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. He says, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he says, I'm holding back. There's a lot of things I could tell you guys about yourselves. But he who sent me is true and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. So it's not like he couldn't have judged them. Matthew Henry said he suppressed his accusation of them. He didn't say everything he could have said. Because his purpose wasn't at this point to judge them. Because what happens? Some of those Pharisees that are bogged down in this unbelief, and then he says, you will die in your sins. Guess what? They got saved. It wasn't like they all perished. We know some of them got saved. Acts 15 talks about some of them that were believers. They had to get straightened out on circumcision. But they all didn't end up perishing, did they? Here's the thing we need to see, though. The light Jesus brought, he didn't come to judge, but it was a form of judgment based on what people did with him and the light he shone. That was its own judgment. You're in John 8, turn to John 12. And let's look there. John 12 and verse 46. Here's what he said. He didn't come to judge, but here's what he said. He says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. That's why he's come. And he says, and if anyone hears my words and does not believe, Jesus says, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But look what he says in verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. He says, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last days. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So he's saying, look, I didn't come to judge. I came to bring light that you might be saved. And here it is. But what you do with my words is going to determine in the end where you end up. That will be your judgment. And If you could just listen to this, Martin Luther said this. I thought this was very good. He said, it's just the same, talking about what Jesus said here in John 12. It's just the same as when a physician says to his patient, I have not come to give you poison and cause your death. I want to help you. If you follow my advice, you need not worry. But if you refuse my advice, call me a rogue or a rascal, regard my medication as nonsense and will not tolerate me around you, then... You are sentencing yourself to death. The fault is yours. I am not the one who is killing you now. Isn't that what he's saying? Jesus is saying, look, I'm bringing you eternal medicine. 
make you well and light that'll bring you life. If you accept it and follow me, all will be well. But if you reject it, I'm not judging you now, but you're judging yourself based on the decision you make. And that's what unbelief will do. And that's what we need to avoid. So the last thing I want to say is it's critical to deal with this last part back to John. It's critical what we do with Jesus, the light of the world. He's telling us here to deal with these verses, and this is all sobering. This is where unbelief will lead you. Look in verses 21 to 24. There's only two ways you can die. And Jesus said to them, verse 21, I am going away. You'll seek me, and you'll die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. Jesus says, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Three times. Now, when he says anything once, it's important. But when he says something three times, it's really important. And three times he says, you will die in your sins. And I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, though, because it bears repeating. There are only two ways a man can die, or a woman. And that is, you can die in your sins, or you can die in the Lord. Only two ways. And that's something that's going to be determined once and for all. Because the state you are when you die is the state you remain for all eternity, either in your sins or in the Lord. He's gone from that gracious offer that he gave in verse 12. That was a gracious offer there, wasn't it? He's gone from that to a what I would call a dire warning. That's what I would say this is. He hasn't changed from love to threats, though, because it's all grace and love, what he's saying here. He is speaking the truth in love. Isn't he? <laughs> Sometimes only a strong warning is going to move somebody. And listen, it worked for Noah, didn't it? It says Noah being warned of God. It doesn't see Noah being shed abroad by God's love. It says Noah being warned of God did what? He moved with fear. Moved him with fear. That warning, it moved him. Caused him to prepare an ark and not only saved him, but his whole house. There you go. By repeating this three times, I think he's obviously emphasizing this is an opportunity for them of a lifetime, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And he's saying, look, if you turn from me now, you may not ever have another chance, and I fear for you. In verse 21, where he says, I'm going away and you will seek me, this commentator said this, the clause, you will seek me, hints at the desperation people feel when after a critical event, they realized they had been with someone or something that was very, very important, but had just missed the opportunity of their lifetime. Jesus claims to be the presence of God, and though he is doubted at the time, afterward a number of doubters will say to each other, those were the most important moments in our lives, and we didn't take them seriously. What do we do now? Like we've heard so many times, I guarantee you that's what they said during Noah's day when he got in the ark and the door was shut and the, everything he said began to happen. And they're like, we didn't take any of that seriously. We were enjoying ourselves the whole time, laughing at him. 
What do we do now? To face eternity in your sins. And I know everyone in here is not born again. I know that. It's not being critical. That would be the greatest horror a person could imagine. There's no reversal, no second chances, no going back and changing things. It's final. The door is shut. Opportunity is gone. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, he said, we persuade men. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not getting on these Pharisees condemning them. He's saying, wake up, men. You don't want to die in your sins. If you don't believe I'm in, you need to turn. You don't believe I am who I say I am. You will die in your sins. So to the saved in here, I would say this. John 12, 35, Jesus said a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We must walk in the light while we have it. And we have it now. We do. We must seek the Lord while he may be found. And he can be found by us now. It's not too late. It's not like we've all missed it. No, we haven't. He's still here. But what if... You're someone in here that you feel you've been born again. You walk with the Lord, but you've missed it. You've missed it. You think, well, I don't feel like I'm in no longer in the light. Don't stay away from the light. That's not the answer because, listen, Peter missed it big time, didn't he? He denied the Lord. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 10, he clearly said, if you deny me before men, what did he say he would do? I'll deny you. Now, is that like case closed? Peter did that. He was even regenerate when he did that. Does that mean it's case closed for Peter? He's going to deny him? No. There still is repentance, isn't there? So he did repent. And you could say he came back to the light. I was thinking about it. I think the light found him. Didn't he? That's the way it always is. It's always grace. And the light found him, met him on the shore of Galilee. Three times, we've heard the message many times. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I love you and all that. But then after he gets through all of that, he invites Peter. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, continuous follows me, will not walk in darkness, have the light of life. So he tells Peter after he goes through all that, do you love me? He says at the end, he says, follow me. In other words, come back in the light. I'm inviting you back in the light, Peter. You don't have to stay out there in darkness. You, you thought, man, I'm ashamed to come back. Come back in the light. And he tells him how he's going to die. He's going to be crucified and all that. And Peter's like, well, what about John? And Jesus' answer was like, don't you worry about him. But what I liked was he pointed to Peter like he would point to you or me. And he says, no, you follow me. What an invitation. Just don't worry about him. Look, we got to quit worrying about what everybody else is or isn't doing. Wherever it is. And we have to follow him in the light. He's inviting us. What an invitation. You follow me. And Peter did. We all stumble, don't we? We all stumble in darkness at times. That's what it's all about. And he says, though a righteous man falls seven times, what happens? The Lord doesn't just leave him there, does he? Picks him up, sets us back in the light and says, you follow me. 
If you would, turn to 1 John. I just do want to look at this. I know it's a familiar verse, but I would like to turn to 1 John chapter 1. I'll be like Brother Hamilton. I'm closing, and I really am. It's not going to be 20 minutes later, unless I get off on a divine tangent. But, all right, here we go. 1 John 1, beginning in verse 5, look what it says. He says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. That's what we've been talking about. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and your walk in darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And here's what we'll need to have happen. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins like Peter did, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. He's saying you stay in the light by coming to that cleansing blood. And your walk is one of walk in the light. Now, you may occasionally stumble, but that's your direction. The way you're walking is this way with an occasional stumble. You go to the blood and it'll keep you in the light. That's what it's all about. So that's for the saved. You can die in the Lord or you can die in your sins. And for the unsaved, think of what Jesus is saying. What if you're in here today? You know you're not saved. You know you could care less about any of this. You know you're not really walking with the Lord to obey Him. What if you died in your sins? That's how the Lord woke me up and pressed that on me. Eternal darkness. We're talking about light, but that's eternal darkness. Matthew 8, with the centurion, Jesus says, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer Darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And those that are there would give anything for a, just a little ray of light and a little ray of hope. But it's gone. It's gone. A.B. Earl, he was a great evangelist. I've read his story back in the 1800s. And he tells this story, a true story about this man there was this deep cave that had never been explored. And this guy decides, I want to have the exclusive honor of being the first one to explore this cave, the interior of this cave. So he got him a little hand lamp and his big ball of twine. He ties the twine on a tree outside the cave and proceeds to go in through the cave. And he goes over all these rugged rocks and passages, untwining the ball of twine as he goes so he can find his way back. And he's like, well, if the lamp goes out, I can just grab hold of the twine and find my way back that way. So he'd gone a long way into the cave. And all of a sudden, he gets through these small openings, and this big room opens up, and he sees all these stalactites and stalagmites. The mites are on the ground. The tights are on above. I looked that up. But he sees all these things, and he decides, well, he puts his lamp and his twine down, and he says, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to break some of these off because I want to take them back and show my friends what I discovered in, t in here. While he's doing that, his lamp tipped over and it went out. And it says at once he left whatever he was endeavoring to obtain to find his lamp and twine. Because he knew his life depended on his finding his lamp and twine. And they said his tracks could be seen where he had crept in total darkness 
back and forth in search of his lamp, but it was all in vain. His lamp once out, his death was certain. If anyone ever started for a given window on a very dark night, perhaps reaching just the opposite window, you couldn't imagine how difficult was the situation of this poor man in the dark cave. Long, weary hours, weary days and nights, he searched as best he could for his lamp and twine, still in vain. Oh, what thoughts of home and dear ones, what self-reproach over his folly and not having someone with him, but it was too late then. He must die alone, unwept. At last the struggle was over. Exhausted and worn, he laid down and died. And as no one knew he was there, it was a long time before his body was found and returned to the dear ones. And here's what A.B. Earl wrote. So it is with unconverted men. They have a little light in having some desire to become a Christian. The Holy Spirit, though often grieved and insulted by the rejections of his gracious calls, still shines, although it may be faintly, upon their darkness and would lead them out to hope in heaven. As in the cave, when the light went out, the thread was lost, and they are in a dark cave without a guide to lead them out. And then their bitter cry will be, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. And he ends with this verse out of a song, too late, too late will be their cry. Jesus of Nazareth has passed by. You just don't want that to be you. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, that should put a fear of God in your heart. Well, what's the answer? And just look here in verses 28 and 29. Where can we find the light? Verses 28, Jesus says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as the Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. I always do those things that please Him. And as He spoke these words, it says, Many believed in Him. And so where is this meeting place that we will find the Father? It's at the cross, isn't it? We sing the song, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. And it was there by grace that I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. So all I'm saying is the cross is the answer. That is the great light God has given us, isn't it? What is God like? Look at the cross. How much does God love you? How much does he love the world? Look at the cross. How can I come to know God? Look at the cross because there his justice and his love is clearly seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is. Let's meet him there. Amen. And glory in the cross. That's what Paul said. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for the words you've given us. And I just ask, Lord, you'll cause all of us to not have an evil heart of unbelief, Lord, and departing from your voice. But, Lord, we'll seek you. We'll walk in your light. We'll walk with you in the light, Lord. And, and if we miss it, we'll just get things right and let your blood cleanse us as we confess our sins. And I just ask you'll put that on all of our hearts. And for those in here, Lord, that aren't saved, I just pray that you'll deal with their hearts by your Holy Spirit and draw them to you, Lord, and by your grace, you'll grant them the gift of faith and repentance that they can know you and have their eyes open and know the true light and the true joy that you'll give them. And I just ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.